0: Chelsea Follett, uh, welcome to COVID Tonic. How are you doing?
1: Good, thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Um, This is the first time that uh, we are having a COVID Tonic episode with a member of uh, Human Progress staff. And just for those people who don't know you, you are of course the managing editor of uh, Human Progress and a colleague of mine at the Cato Institute. And uh, today we will not be talking about COVID, at least I don't think we will, we might. Um, But we are going to be talking about a new paper, uh, which you have uh, written and uh, which Cato has published. And uh, why don't you tell us um, what uh, the paper is, uh, what's its name, where it can be found, and uh, why did you think about writing it?
1: Sure, the paper is called Neo-Malthusianism and Coercive Population Control in China and India, you can find it on Cato's website. We also have a blog post on humanprogress.org that uh, talks about some of the issues involved and that links to it. And it is about Malthusianism. I know with the current pandemic that it can feel like that is the only major problem that people worry about. But even before the pandemic, a problem that many people were concerned about, or a supposed problem that many people were concerned about, was overpopulation. So where does this idea come from? Uh, It comes from, uh, well, originally Thomas Malthus, from which we get the term Malthusianism, uh, wrote a book on his fears that population uh, would rise to the point where we would not be able to feed ourselves and there would be widespread famines. And he wrote this at the end of the 18th century. Now of course, we know that the Industrial Revolution happened, Uh, poverty declined dramatically, wages rose, people were able to pay for uh, better sanitation, lifespans increased, and so the population grew massively, but there was no famine. We were able to feed ourselves. But then this idea underwent a resurgence in the 60s and 70s. That's why we call it Neo-Malthusianism. Uh, During that time, the world population again was growing rapidly, specifically the decline in infant mortality and child mortality around the world was allowing the population to grow at a rate that we had not seen before. And as the world population swelled, many people worried that it would lead to some kind of ecological or social disaster. What we saw then, though, was the Green Revolution. Once again, human ingenuity rose to the occasion and we were able to not only feed the growing population of the world, but human prosperity has actually been taken to new heights that our ancestors would not be able to imagine. We now have a crisis of obesity rather than starvation. Uh, It truly is incredible what we've been able to do. And yet this idea just won't die. Even today you hear many people uh, speaking about overpopulation as though it's an urgent problem necessitating government intervention and unfortunately that sometimes results in truly horrendous human rights abuses which is what the paper focuses on.
0: So before we go and talk about today and uh, also about uh, China and India specifically, um, I think it's worthwhile to uh, point out. that Malthus was actually historically correct, which is to say that writing at the end of the 18th century, he was uh, uh, reflecting on human experience, past experience with, with overpopulation, which is uh, that when the numbers increased, but productivity of the land didn't increase increase together with population, uh, you could have starvation. Uh, but, uh, but as often happens when authors write about uh, things they don't realize that they may be living through time when uh, when things are beginning to change. And so historically Malthus may have been correct in, uh, in summarizing the history of our species, but that hasn't occurred since then I, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, so I, I, I think it's, uh it's worthwhile pondering why even though Malthus has been wrong for the last, what, 250 years or so, um, why this notion of overpopulation is back in the news. So could you maybe tell us about the, 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 the relevance of Malthusianism today? Wh- who holds Malthusian views uh, and, and who pro- propagates it?
1: Sure, so there are two answers to that question. Who holds Malthusian views? Unfortunately, many people do, many prominent people, including you know celebrities ranging from uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, to Bill Mayer. We see this view espoused by many famous people. Uh, Prince Harry recently uh, worried about overpopulation. And of course, last year, famously, the Congresswoman, Uh, From New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked whether in the face of climate change it's still okay to have children. So we see this uh, view being propagated by many prominent individuals from celebrities to political leaders as to where it is having an effect, where it is actually resulting in policy changes that are affecting people's lives. Uh, Fortunately, we don't see that in the United States uh, today, we don't see that in the West, but we do see that in China and to a far lesser extent, India, which is why that is where the paper focuses uh, its attention.
0: So I think maybe in the next two questions, we can separate Uh, what happened in China and India already, historically, you were talking about the resurgence of Neo-Malthusian thinking in the 60s and the 70s, and then uh, turn back and and talk about what policies are still in place. So let's start with China in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. Uh, What happened there?
1: Well, China instituted the one-child policy, arguably the most dramatic and draconian Malthusian policy that the world has ever seen it had very dramatic effects uh, it saw over 300 million Chinese women fitted with uh, intrauterine devices uh, that were modified to be irremovable without major surgery we normally think of IUDs as a temporary reversible form of birth control not a big deal but when you are man when they mandate uh, a form of birth control like that on a wide uh, scale and then modify the devices to make them irremovable without major surgery. That is de facto sterilization of the population. They also uh, did over 100 million permanent sterilization surgeries of the traditional kind, and over 300 million abortions took place in China over the course of the one-child policy. Many of which were coerced.
0: Mm-hmm. And and just to discuss that device that you were talking about. Uh, What does it do? Why is it it important in terms of birth control? For those of us who are not familiar with intra-urinary.
1: IUDs? Um, It is a device inserted uh, that prevents pregnancy. It prevents uh, people from being able to conceive children.
0: Okay. So, 300 million abortions, um, hundreds of millions of um, these procedures and, and so forth. And Chinese population growth has, of course, declined, but so it has, the rest of the world. Am I right on that?
1: That's correct. If you look at birth rates in Hong Kong, an autonomous region of China that was not ever subject to birth limits of any kind, their birth rates actually fell faster than China's. We see that around the world with normal economic development as people become wealthier, as their children are more likely to survive to adulthood, people stop having uh, large numbers of children as a, a sort of insurance strategy to ensure that they have some children who survive. So we see birth rates declining everywhere, even in sub-Saharan Africa, the poorest region on Earth, birth rates are now in decline voluntarily. So China claims that by instituting these birth limits, they prevented a large number of births, but that's actually not clear. It looks like their birth rate probably would have declined just like every other country on earth without these draconian measures. All they really accomplished was uh, widespread suffering.
0: Could you maybe bring it home and and talk about uh, some of the things that you have found out about the suffering of the Chinese women? Because you know, often when you talk about large numbers, hundreds of millions here, hundreds of millions there, Uh, one doesn't really get a sense of how horrific uh, this system of one-child policy was. What did you find out in your research about uh, the the behavior of the Chinese government and and the lives of ordinary people?
1: It turned the lives of ordinary people upside down, particularly the poor who could often not afford the fines. uh, for illegal births. It turned upside down the lives of the children who were born illegally. Many people, of course, did manage to evade the policy and gave birth to children who were uh, illegal, who were never recognized by the Chinese government as existing. Uh, they are called uh, black children in uh, Chinese as a nickname because they have no official registration. They're not able to attend school, uh, attain obtain work, travel, marry or apply for a birth permit to have children themselves one day. All of these things are denied to them unless they go through an extremely Kafkaesque process to attempt to gain registration or they bribe an official or through connections or other means manage to obtain a registration whether legitimate or a fake ID. And this hasn't just turned upside down the lives of women, it hasn't just harmed them. because of a traditional preference in China for sons over daughters. When you combine that with birth limits, when people know, well, we've only got one uh, you know, shot at having a child, they often chose to have a son, and this resulted in a lot of sex-selective abortion, in some cases even female infanticide, to the point where China's uh, sex ratio of the entire country has become very uh, much skewed, their sex ratio at birth. In fact, the sex ratio at birth of the entire world was skewed as, re- as a result of their policy because China is such a populist Country, it has an effect on the sex ratio at birth of the entire world, and this has harmed many of the men in China too, because the missing women in the population are so uh, so numerous that many of the men in the country really do not have any hope of finding a Chinese wife, and so there are many bachelors in China. We have seen uh, data showing that they have high rates of depression, aggression, crime, etc., and this has also uh, led to sex trafficking of brides from other countries and many other social problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of actually people dying, uh, children and, and, and women. I, I think I read in your in your paper about uh, situations where uh, w- when we think about forced, we often think that the state will tell you that you have to do X, otherwise something bad is going to happen to you down the line. But in China, when we are talking about forced sterilizations and, and forced abortions especially, They actually happened using physical violence, is that the case?
1: In some cases, unfortunately, yes. So this policy spans many years, and in different areas of China, you saw very different forms of enforcement. It was very decentralized in how it was enforced. So in some areas, it was more lenient. You'd be able to get away with violating the policy with a bribe, or they just would not check every village, and you'd be able to get away with it. But in other areas, it was very brutally enforced. We have reports in the early years of the policy from the Wall Street Journal of women being literally tied up, uh, gathered into trucks, and driven off to get forced abortions or sterilizations. In the paper, you can see accounts uh, that are extremely horrific of people who underwent uh, very late-term forced abortions that actually failed, resulting in the birth of live children who were then uh, killed before the parents' eyes. It's, It's really horrific. scale of what happened
0: and this policy was in place when the one child policy in china
1: it was in place from 1979 to 2015 and many people talk about uh, the one-child policy and forced sterilizations and forced abortions in China as though that is entirely in the past, but at the beginning of 2016, what they did was institute the two-child policy. China never entirely got rid of birth limits. While they are now actually encouraging many couples to have a second child, and the overall government of China does realize now that their declining birth rates could have effects on the country's fiscal commitments and the economy. And many people in the government are worried about declining birth rates. Uh, These uh, limits are actually still in effect. And we still see, even with reports uh, currently from last year, there was a report of a family who had their life savings seized when they had a child illegally. Last year, there was a report of a woman who, uh, who was fired from her job for having a third child. Deemed illegal. We saw a BBC investigation shortly after they switched to the two child policy where they interviewed a family in hiding uh, because they had a third. Uh, They were pregnant with a third child um, that was in violation of the policy, and they knew that if they remained at their home and were caught by officials, they would be forced to have an abortion, and then the woman would be forced to be sterilized against her wishes to comply with the policy. So even today, although it's certainly uh, a step up from the one-child policy, we do see enforcement of the two-child policy. and. Most notably, this policy is enforced uh, in an even stricter manner against the Uyghur population and other ethnic minorities in China, such as the ethnic Kazakhs. Uh, the government um, still... Use, let, sorry. Let
0: me stop you there for one second. Um, so just to summarize, we will turn to Uyghurs in a moment, but just to summarize. So uh, until 2015, they had a one-child policy tremendous amount of suffering and so on. And since 2015, they have two child policy, but but you will be punished if you have a third child. In other words, the state is still centrally planning how many children a woman can have, a family can have, right, and there are still penalties and human rights abuses in terms of sterilizations and forced abortions, they still go on. It's just that now it kicks in at a different uh, uh, count of children.
1: That's correct, and this is less common today, not only because uh, the birth limit doesn't kick in until three children, but also because uh, fewer people in China Uh, want to have a third children, fewer people are attempting to violate the policy than in the past. So that's why it's rarer today certainly, but it is still a rule that's on the books, it's still justified in Malthusian terms, it is still enforced particularly among populations that the government uh, dislikes for other reasons as well.
0: Can we talk about that now, uh, the, the Uyghurs, and so how does that fit with the Malthusian idea Um, And uh, yeah, what is the Chinese government up to?
1: So, both historically and today, we unfortunately often see fears about overpopulation, Malthusianism, going hand in hand with the belief that some populations or some people are more worthy of having children Than others. Back in the 60s and 70s, during the initial rise of neo Malthusianism, we often saw proponents of that view working with people who wanted to limit uh, births for reasons of eugenics, uh, the view that you could improve the population by preventing certain people from having children. They were often allies, Malthusians and eugenicists working hand in hand. Sometimes they were the same people. Many people held both views. They were actually very complementary of one another. And today, you still often see uh, Malthusian views going hand in hand with uh, prejudice against certain groups. So the Chinese government believes that you know, overpopulation is a problem, or at least that's how they officially justify the two-child policy. At the same time that is a very convenient cover for them to decrease the populations of certain minority groups. So you see prejudice against the Uyghurs and other minorities uh, going hand in hand with Malthusian
0: beliefs. Mm -hmm. So would you go as far as to say that the Chinese government is using Malthusian excuses in order to perpetrate uh, human rights abuses against a specific group of people, in this case Uyghurs. So for some reason, the Chinese government has decided that Uyghurs have to be uh, uh, reduced in population, to to use uh, sort of a very cruel uh, term, Um, but if you just got yourself involved in a genocide, the world would be aflame with condemnation of what you are doing. So instead you justify it in Malthusian terms, and that way you essentially blunt or, or reduce uh, some of the criticism that might come your way. Would, would that be a, a right way to think about it?
1: I think it would be. I don't think that's going too far at all, unfortunately, because so many people around the world in prominent positions hold this fear of overpopulation by dressing what they're doing in that language, by saying, we're doing this to combat overpopulation. If we didn't do this, the population would explode and there would be disaster. They're able to make the reduction of the Uyghur population much more palatable to people in the United States, to other people abroad, who normally would be... Uh, horrified. If you just said, we plan on committing genocide against this group, obviously no one would be able to support that. But by addressing it in this language, they are able to make what they're doing sound like it is for a noble purpose.
0: That's fascinating and and horrific at the same time. Um, Switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about India. Now, uh, you are at pains to point out that India and China are quite different, um, uh, quite different situations. Um, these two are not exactly the same. Uh, but, but it is worth mentioning that bad things have happened in India and maybe some bad things are even continuing. So can you give us also a sense of what happened in India back when and what is still going on today?
1: Sure. So the worst, uh, one of the worst human rights abuses we've seen related to Neo-Malthusianism was the emergency, a period of time in India from 1975 to 77, when while civil liberties were suspended and the prime minister was ruling by decree, her son, uh, Sanjay Gandhi, who had no official position and uh, his power was entirely unconstitutional, chose to violate Indian law by uh, instituting extremely strict quotas for sterilization and allowing the police to help officials forcefully sterilize uh, millions of Indians.
0: Okay, and, and uh, again, can, can you sort of bring it uh, home by um, giving some examples of what happened during, during this time?
1: Sure. So people were rounded up um, on street corners outside. Many people took to leaving their homes or hiding, uh, to not going on main roadways or thoroughfares, uh, only staying home or being at work to try to avoid these officials who would come and round people up. The focus on having a certain number of people be sterilized was so strong that the officials were not even concerned with the characteristics of those they were sterilizing. They sterilized homeless people, elderly people past their reproductive years, young people who did not yet have any children, uh, people whose spouses had already been sterilized. There are even some accounts of people undergoing the procedure twice, which obviously makes no sense. Uh, There was Uh, Another thing going on during the emergency uh, called uh, beatification drives, where they raised certain neighborhoods uh, called slum neighborhoods that were not seen as uh, particularly uh, aesthetically pleasing. And the people whose homes were destroyed by the government during these drives were then told that they would be uh, given a new housing plot, a new plot of land, if they underwent sterilization. So if your home was just destroyed by the government and then your only choice was to either be homeless or to get sterilized, that's not a free choice, obviously. Uh, There were cases of people going into state hospitals, government-run hospitals, for entirely unrelated things and then being sterilized, often without even being informed that that is what was happening. To them, or being denied treatment unless they agreed to undergo sterilization, and the schools, the state-run schools, also got involved with teachers. According to some witness accounts, threatening to fail students unless their parents elected to undergo sterilization.
0: Okay, so that went on uh, during the 70s. You said from 75 to 77, I think. Correct. And. Uh, how is India doing now? I mean, I, I, I think it's sort of heartening in a way that such terrible things could happen in India only during an emergency, uh, during, during a period of deep political instability and essentially an, a, a, a one person rule. Uh, But India is obviously a democracy. It is a very successful democracy. Um, Are there any remnants of both Malthusian policies, but also Malthusian thinking going on in India at this time?
1: Unfortunately, yes. So coercion is illegal in India. Uh, it's worth noting that after the emergency, Indira Gandhi received a resounding electoral defeat. Democracy provides uh, protective quality against these sorts of widespread abuses on the population, very fortunately. But the mindset that overpopulation is a severe problem that needs to be remedied by government action is unfortunately still very much present in india we saw last year prime minister narendra modi uh, during uh, india's his uh, independence day speech address uh, specifically saying that there was an overpopulation explosion going on and he called indian families who have few children patriotic implying that those who have many children are unpatriotic and this is unfortunately uh a view that many politicians hold. Now, of course, as with China, there are multiple motivations here. There's a fear of overpopulation, but in India, there is also a prejudice against the Muslim uh, minority. In India, Muslims tend to have more children than do Hindus. So when uh, Prime Minister Modi made those remarks, it was uh, widely interpreted as a not-so-subtle slight against the Muslim minority. He was talking about overpopulation, but there was a subtext also that certain groups were to blame for overpopulation more than others. And in India today, uh, half of the population live in states that have two-child policies of varying kinds. Now, when we say two-child policy in India, it's very different from in China. Uh, There is no violence or physical force. But there are some penalties. Uh, People who have more than two children are not allowed to be full participants in society because there are certain restrictions placed upon them. They cannot run for electoral office in many cases. Uh, They are not able to hold uh, any sort of job working for the government, such as being a public school teacher, uh, a common job. They, you know, even a janitor for a government building they're not allowed to be if they have three children in the paper there's a quote from one man who was hired uh, to be i believe a security guard and then he was fired the next day when they discovered that he actually had three children thus disqualifying him from the position and in some cases there are also extra taxes or penalties upon people who have more than two children. And we've now seen a number of proposals put forward by various politicians to enact a nationwide two-child policy. Currently, only about half the population of India is affected. This would bring it to the entire population, where people with uh, people who violated an ideal family size determined by technocrats and had one too many children would not be able to fully participate in society in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, I want to make one comment that was prompted by a reference to technocrats, because I think that a lot of young viewers uh, may not understand the concept of quotas and why that was important in the Indian situation. So, uh, when, when a quota is declared by a centrally planned economy or a, or, or, or a state, it has to be met, right? So, Gandhi... Uh, decided that uh, every state or every community had to deliver a certain number of sterilizations and then public officials presumably would be held accountable if those sterilizations were not actually produced at a local level and that that is where you get into crazy situations like sterilizing people twice just so that you can add another sterilization to the quota which you need to deliver to the the federal government. so I think uh, I, I, I thought that was uh, that needed to be clarified, but um, so where do we go from here? What is, uh, what is an optimal size of family, uh, according to Chelsea Pollett, and uh, uh, what, uh, what, what would you recommend um, we do in order to prevent human rights abuses based on Malthusian ideas from spreading and taking hold?
1: I think it's a very personal decision that each family and each individual needs to make for themselves, and I do not think that we should have the government certainly recommending any particular family size, because once you get into particular quotas, as you mentioned, that quickly runs into the problem of people sometimes making different decisions than you would like for them to make to meet those quotas. And then you get into actual situations of coercion. The ideal outcome would be for people to realize this, for China to end the two-child policy, which there are now many hopeful signs that they're moving toward that, Uh, and for India to reverse all of the Malthusian policies that it still has on the books. Unfortunately, in India, it still is a very popular mindset among the elite of the country. And even aside from the two child policy, they also have some policies such as um, uh, a malapportionment, actually, of political representation in their lower house of parliament uh, that has been skewed to try to reward and disproportionately represent states with lower uh, population growth while punishing states with higher population growth. This makes no sense, it's very unlikely to alter any families in uh, decisions in terms of how many children they'll have. No one's going to have fewer children just to try to reverse uh, political representation in this way, that makes no sense. So it's completely pointless, that should be ended, but the mindset underlying these problems uh, needs to be ended to really get people to move away from coercion. It's a crisis mindset. When you believe that overpopulation is about to result in disaster, a crisis, then you're willing to suspend civil liberties that you would normally extend to people. Most people have a presumption of freedom, okay, you can do whatever you want, have one child, have three children, not my business. But once there is an emergency and everyone's well being depends upon you having only a certain number of children, that then results, uh, can result in horrific coercion or uh, disincentives that are softer, like we're seeing in India, that still do give people a message that they cannot be full participants in society if they have more children than a bureaucrat somewhere deems appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. This crisis mentality, um, where does it come from? I mean, obviously in the 60s and the 70s, uh, it surrounded the issue of food supply, right? But now the world is better fed than ever before. We have more people than ever before, but we also have more food than ever before. Um, And there doesn't seem to be any suggestion uh, any indicator suggesting that we are going to run out of food. So what's driving, what's fueling Malthusian concerns about overpopulation today if it's not lack of food?
1: So in some cases, it actually is still justified in terms of resource scarcity. But the uh, thing that you often hear uh, when people start speaking of overpopulation, uh, you often hear that going hand in hand with fears of about climate change, about having more people resulting in more pollution. But of course, we do know that it's possible to reduce the amount of pollution per person. And we're seeing uh, lots of trends recently because of the pandemic, as more people, for example, have been teleworking. We have seen a huge decline in pollution uh, because fewer people are commuting. There are absolutely ways that we can use technology to Decrease the amount of pollution per person and in many cases dramatically. We're seeing huge gains in energy efficiency We're seeing all sorts of trends for environmental Optimism and so having a crisis mentality uh, In any case is not the right way to approach these problems environmental problems are real But these are challenges that we need to take on there are challenges worthy of optimism and ultimately even though these are uh, real problems with in many cases severe consequences, they're not any different from the problems humanity has faced in the past in the sense that ultimately, ingenuity, innovation, human creativity, cooperation, these are the things that are going to help us find a solution out of a problem, simply saying this is a crisis and the only solution is to force people to have fewer children, is incompatible with human rights and, is not the proper way to go about thinking about these problems.
0: Would you go as far as to say that more people actually is good for the planet in a sense that they produce? It's the people who produce more ideas, which then lead to innovation, uh, and which then lead to, to betterment for humanity, but also saving of the globe. I mean, after all, it's only people who can come up with ideas. So maybe the more people we have, um, the more ideas about improving the state of the world we can come up with. Would, would you agree with that or is that going too far?
1: I would agree with that. That is, of course, the economist Julian Simon's argument that people are themselves the ultimate resource, that we can make other resources more plentiful, that we can come up with solutions to problems, even uh, dramatic problems like climate change. Uh, But I think another thing that we haven't talked about, which is very important to mention when considering these issues, is that the global population is set to decline. Estimates from every reliable organization, from the UN to any organization you pick show that in the long run, since birth rates are falling voluntarily around the world, as we did mention, the world population will decline. So in any case, whether you think that human beings are a net positive or a net negative for the planet, uh, it's clear that the population is going to decline voluntarily, and so there is no need for coercive measures wherever you stand. On that issue. And another reason for environmental optimism that we see is that up until you know, this year, which has obviously disrupted a lot of these trends, uh, the world has been becoming richer and richer, and we've seen poverty decline. And as that happens, as countries become wealthier and poverty declines, uh, we witness what's called the environmental Kuznets curve. Wealthier people have more time and energy and desire to protect the natural environment around them. You see beautiful natural, uh, you know, nature preserves, etc., in rich countries. You see uh, less pollution coming out of rich countries as people... Uh, having moved on from the basic necessities of survival, are able to uh, broaden their circle of empathy and concern to include uh, the natural world, the well-being of animals and uh, having large green spaces to
0: enjoy. So the problem, if it is a problem, is going to resolve itself and uh, we shouldn't try to destroy human lives and cause tremendous amount of suffering for something that may not be a problem after all that seems to be the upshot of your paper
1: that is the upshot uh many people are worried about this and the population is growing so in some sense that's understandable but it's set to decline so wherever you stand on population ultimately this is a problem if it is a problem that will resolve itself
0: very good um so i uh obviously i recommend that uh people have a look at your paper, um, follow you on Twitter, and uh, we will publish this episode as soon as possible. Thank you very much, Chelsea Follett.
1: Thank you, Marian.